Oh, I am appreciative of the consideration of Iris' prayer to pray for sick parents as they care for sick kids because you have not fully arrived as a parent until you were cleaning up vomit and then vomit into that vomit. <laughs> now, by that definition, I have not fully arrived as a parent, but I have encouraged Sharon from afar <laughs> as she arrived. So, good for her. <clears throat> We are in a series that we just began in 1 Samuel that we're going to be tracking along till the fall. And in that series, we will follow the lives of the most major characters at the book will be Samuel and Saul and David. In a lot of ways, it was this idea of a teaching was birthed out of the idea of we wanted to do a biography on David, but then the more we looked at David, like, well, you can't really teach David without Saul and you can't teach Saul without Samuel. So let's just do the whole two books. But with that, one of the lesser space given to characters, but in many ways a representation of the entire book, and therefore one that is seen as equally important, we talked about last week and this week, which is the character of Hannah, the mother of Samuel. Now, she's a barren mother that's given a child. Uh, she uh, has this theme going on where she's constantly tormented by this other wife of this uh, Elkanah, and she is regularly reliving her shame that she is not able to do what all women are valued for doing in her culture and society, which is producing an heir. And through this, there's, we talked last week, like this constant theme of doubles throughout this full first chapter. There's double sons in both uh, Eli's two sons that are priests. There's double wives. The one wife, this being Hannah, receives a double portion. Uh, Ramathium, the place where they're from, means double peaks. Ephraim means double fruitful. And so there's this constant sense of double, and it's this idea that God has been working out a way of leading his people ever since they came across from Egypt out of slavery into the Promised Land, and that was in the book of Judges. Because the book of Judges is what immediately leads into Samuel. There's Ruth uh, in between there in the Christian Bible, but in the original Hebrew ways of organizing the Bible, Ruth is in another spot. And so you have, you're meant to go from Judges directly into Samuel. And in Judges, all it says constantly is that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And they have these leaders come in and sometimes like save them from total destruction, the people of God. But it's only just continually rerouting them just to fall back off into their own destruction again. And so now in this time in the book of Samuel, this is going to introduce the monarchy that God is going to make his people into a nation. And he's saying, hey, we've been going one way, but now there's a second way that I'm going to provide for you that is going to be more sufficient than the first. And so, in verse 19 through 20, we see that Hannah is given a baby, and she names him Samuel, meaning I have asked for him from the Lord. Now, it's interesting if you dive into that with scholars, they get a little bit weird about it because they're, the word Samuel or the word that is the root doesn't exactly mean I have asked from the Lord, but there is a way if you look at the way that it's spelled in certain letters, then you can form out other words that mean I've asked for the Lord. This is a lot of times how uh, Hebrew is going to work. They're going to take certain level, letters, and then they're going to take those letters and spell other words, and they're meant to interconnect with one another, and that's going to come up later in the book, so I just want to bring up that concept. But either way, this, uh, we know that this is what uh, Hannah intended, because she said, I've asked from the Lord, is why she's naming him Samuel. And then in 21, 
Read with me. The man, Elkanah, and all his house went up to offer to the Lord a yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. The first thing that you see, and we talked last week about the faith of Hannah, and which produces that <clears throat> the way of seeing Hannah as more than just this little origin story for Samuel, is the fact that the entire pivot of history of the people of Israel being reckless and doing what's wise in their own eyes, and all of a sudden coming under the leadership of a wise and loving ruler that will lead them into the kingdom of Israel representing the people of God, known as David, it pivots from a prayer of a barren woman pleading desperately to be given a son. And when she receives this son out of her prayer, she is now going to begin to do two things. One, and the first one let's look at, is that she is going to make good on what she said she would do. In the first section, it talks about how she says, hey, I'm going to, if you give me a son, I will give him to you. He will be a Nazarite. This is the whole idea of like he won't have a razor on his head. He won't drink strong drink. This was a vow that certain people who were dedicated to the service of the Lord would take for a period of time. She said, he's not just going to do it for a period of time. He's going to do it for his entire life. He is going to be made to worship you. That's when Hannah says, hey, I'm going to go up and we're going to go to the pilgrimage and we're going to return. The implication, he's not. He is forever on the pilgrimage of worship. And so that's somewhat easy to pray, or at least easy to do when you are barren, and there's no way that you are going to have a child. And so, yes, it's kind of easy to be like, man, if I ever give a child, I will give him totally to you. But when it comes to it, and when you've miraculously been given a son, now you actually have to go through the heart-wrenching act of weaning your child and sending him off to serve and to worship the Lord and to bring about the new way that God is doing. And it seems at first like she's balking at it. It first seems like, you know, Elkanah, like there's this pattern where, or you see in the first chapter, it's going to talk about Hannah going up to Shiloh, going up to sacrifice, and now it's going to say Elkanah went up but Hannah did not go up. And it's almost like a record skip of like, okay, is she, is she not going to go through with it? Because she says, hey, I'll, I'll go through, but I just need to wean him first, and then he'll go and he'll live there forever. And, of course, weaning at that time was much later. I mean, it was, you can get anything from two to five years old. Probably most people think that Samuel's three or four when he's weaned. Because they did not have the ability to have all the digestible foods that you could have uh, at a more uh, acceptable way. I mean, basically what this means is that Hannah was not able to pure up organic carrots and peas and make them into cubes for Samuel to eat. Because as a parent, another just view into parenthood, uh, for your first child, you do crazy stuff like that. You take your own pureed sweet potatoes and freeze them in ice cube trays so that you can then save them out and this baby can eat beautiful, whole, organic food. You're basically, your baby does Whole30 for their entire first two years of their life. 
Now, by the third kid, you're just like, you, you ask him to come over here and like, what do you got in your mouth? What is this, a hot dog? Where'd you get this? You know what? I don't care. I don't have to feed you now. And it's a completely different experience. But regardless here, we have three to five years. Samuel comes. And Hannah is reaffirming the fact that she is going to give him over. But not just Hannah is reaffirming that. Elkanah is affirming that. When he says to her, he says, hey, may God do, may he have, uh, well, let me see, where I find it? In 23, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, do what seems best to you. Wait until you've weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So what Elkanah is doing here is that in the book of Numbers, Numbers 30, it says that if a woman gives a vow that her husband is unaware of, or she gives it while she's a maiden and then she gets married, that the husband then has the opportunity to affirm or to nullify that vow. And so Elkanah here chooses to affirm her vow. And we have to recognize too, Elkanah is also making a sacrifice. He's giving away the firstborn son of his favored wife. This is hearkening back to Abraham who first has Ishmael, but then when Sarah, his wife, has Isaac, he's willing to sacrifice and give him away. Or then you have Jacob, who receives several sons from Leah, but then when Rachel, his favored wife, births him Joseph, he eventually has to give Joseph away. And so now we have Elkanah and Hannah, and they're giving him together. And they are able to do it because those who have been given to, give to. Or another way to say it, those who have been provided for cannot help but become reckless in their generosity. Because not only they're going to give uh, this over to uh, Samuel, or uh, give Samuel over to the Lord, but then they're going to give this sacrifice. Uh, read along with me in verse 24. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, uh, along with her uh, a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli and said, O oh Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is lent to the Lord. Now, in verse 24, when it talks about them bringing a three-year-old bull, most scholars are going to say the language actually is pretty clear that it was actually bringing three bulls and three ephahs of flour and three skins of wine. And what this is, is that Hannah and Elkanah, as they give Samuel, are giving three annual sacrifices. And not just like the lowest of sacrifices. I mean, there's in the Torah ways that we're like, if you don't have the money to afford like a bull or like this, you can do like a goat or man, you can even do some birds. Like, I mean, just whatever you can do, like whatever you can give, you can give the Lord. And they give the most expensive of sacrifices. This would be the equivalent of you donating 25% of your annual salary times three in one year. And they're giving too in reckless generosity. And it seems like, man, that's crazy. They're giving the son, they're giving three of the most expensive sacrifices you can give, 
but they have been given a son from a barren womb. And I can only imagine you would have to be a woman who has been barren and prayed year after year after year to get how mind-blowing provision that would be. And that she recognizes, I've been given to in my humility, and therefore I serve a God who I can give anything to because he has given to me out of an abundance of generosity. Why would I hold him back? Because he's proven that no matter what I do, he is going to make it good to me. And so I can give this son, I can go through the pain of weaning him and then passing him off because I have so come to believe that God can do anything good out of anything bad that even this that seems like I don't want to will actually turn out in my deepest joy. It will be what God has made to do. And not only for me, but it shows that this is what God is doing to care for the entire Israelite people. That now we mark the history of Christianity and Judaism by Hannah and her prayer and then her willingness to be generous with that which she received. And so, this is that, what she's talking about in verse 26 and 28 when she talks to Eli. Uh, there's four mentions of this root word of just like, again, using these letters. They're not all the same word, but they all use the same letters of the word to give. And so in 26, she says, and she said, oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying the Lord for this child. I prayed and the Lord granted me. That's to give my petition. Petition is another word that is based off the letters of to give. And I made to him. Therefore, I have lent to give him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to give to the Lord. And that Hannah is saying that I have received Samuel. I named him Samuel because I have been heard and he's been given to me by the Lord. I have been given to and therefore it immediately flows directly out of me to give recklessly and generously back to the Lord. Um, I uh, remember when I was given a car, which actually I've, I've heard at least of two families in our church that have given cars away. There's probably more. Uh, but I was once given a car. In fact, if we track through, I've actually been given every car I've ever owned. Um, outside of uh, the one that we bought recently that keeps getting trying to be stolen and given to other people. Um, but I guess in a way that's been given back to me <laughs> twice. So in every car I've ever owned, there was one particularly that when my first car uh, that was given to me by my grandparents to my parents, a 1984 Dodge Rampage. If you don't know what they are, look them up. They were Dodge's answer to the El Camino and they are beautiful. But I eventually didn't totally break down, but it was just like, you know, we were young, we were married, we didn't have a ton of money, and they like broke down enough. We were like, we can't keep putting money in this car. And so we were a part of Campus Crusade staff at Butler at the time, and there was a member of staff who just said, you can have this car. And I found out later, he was given that car. And then a few years later, when we were given the money to buy our van, and therefore once again had a second car, I had someone in our church body who needed a car. And it would have been really just unthinkable in that moment if I would have turned around and turned profit on this car. Because I'd been given a car by someone who'd been given a car. And I gave him that car. And I think that car fell apart on him. That's where it ended. That was the giving train. But still, it was a, out of an abundance of giving, I, it is easy to then go forward and give. 
And that's why the, there's a whole parable about when Jesus is talking about forgiveness, and he says, like, hey, there's this guy who, like, had two debts, one of a ton of money and the one of, like, a, just a little bit, and he forgives both of them their debts. And he's like, which one would be more grateful? It's like, well, probably the one that had the bigger debt relief. But then the one who had the bigger debt goes and sees somebody who has, like, a tiny little debt, and then he demands it back. And the first man who forgave his debt is like, what are you doing? Like, have you not been given too generously? This is confusing. And Jesus says, similarly, for those who are unable to give forgiveness, for those who have been radically forgiven, for something that someone has done to you, regardless of the idea of what I have done to the God of the universe and his creation, or if somebody is giving to me generously, if I can't then give generously, it's confusing. It doesn't make sense. It makes, as Jesus is making the point, makes one think, maybe you don't realize you've been given to. Maybe you think you did this. Maybe you think it keeps together by you continuing to do it. Because, yeah, it's either that you haven't been, you haven't fully received or you don't trust that you'll continue to receive. And it's this misunderstanding of your ability to care for yourself and God's desire to exalt the humble. That's Hannah's prayer. Read with me, chapter 2, verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My Lord exalts, uh, my heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. This beginning where it says, hey, I exalt in the Lord, and I am exalted by the Lord, not just I am exalted, but my horn is exalted. This is a regular scriptural image. It's going to show up a couple times in the Psalms. It's going to show up in Zechariah about God having their horn exalted, or somebody, the nation of Israel, some in this case, Hannah specifically, saying, my horn is exalted. And what that is, is it was a reference to what a bull would do when they were able to become alpha bull and put all the other bulls under their alpha ness. They would exalt their horns and raise and lift them high as both a symbol of victory and triumph and pride, the ability to say, I am in charge now. I am the captain now is what they would say. And so then in this moment, when Hannah is received this child, she says, hey, you have lifted my horn in victory. Because as you see it used in Scripture, Israel will always use it, particularly when they are given freedom over oppression. They will mark it by saying, hey, you've exalted us like the proudest bull, like the one who nobody messes with. And then it's going on to say that her mouth uh, derides her enemies. The actual like, Hebrew wording there is that her mouth grows to engulf her enemy, uh, which, you know, there's no bigger way to say you dominate someone than if you just eat them in one bite. Um, like, it's actually, what it's like is the final moment after all the credits of Finding Nemo. And if you watch through all the credits, which most Pixar movies, they, they get you to watch the credits because they put either like the little fake bloopers or they just put little things that are happening all throughout. And at Finding Nemo, if you make it not just past like, you know, through the credits, but like after everything's gone, 
you see this little blenny, which is like the tiniest of a little fish that is like kind of swimming around a couple times. And then at one point, there's this big, scary anglerfish that they go up against. And so the big, scary anglerfish comes up, and the little blenny is there and like cowering. And all of a sudden, the blenny like enlarges and in one bite swallows the anglerfish. Why do I take time to tell you that? Because that's more or less Hannah's prayer in an image. If you just want to think about, if you want to go and study the book of Samuel, uh, I would recommend watching the very last uh, moment of the credits of Finding Nemo, because that is a strong image for what you're going to receive in the rest of this prayer. And so she says, hey, my mouth is now expanding and engulfs my enemy. And then chapter two, or sorry, two, verse four. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. God is going to talk, or Hannah is going to recognize that God, Yahweh, has done three quick reversals, and three quick reversals for that which people are most concerned of in this moment. So you'll see, starting in four, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. That's military power, or just simply power in itself. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread. Those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. Uh, Food, obviously, is a major idea of security, comfort, pleasure. And then the barren have borne seven, but she who has, uh, has many children is forlorn. This idea of the most possible way of having security is having multiple heirs, having, in this case, seven heirs, versus the one who's born many now is forlorn and has lost all of the security. And it's getting at these root desires of their society, which are actually pretty much the root desires of all of society. In fact, I even uh, have a slide here for this. Uh, there have been identified by certain people, and I'm sure you could dice this up in different ways, but for the purposes of this morning, let's just talk about four desires, root desires that look like this. Uh, power, a longing for influence and success, or control, a longing for certainty. Comfort, a longing for pleasure, and approval, a longing to be loved and desired. These are actually good desires. These are desires that every single human needs. But the question is, is how do you get these desires? Which, interestingly enough, uh, the way that we have historically at least given lip service to going after these desires is through a Judeo-Christian view of having them provided to you by a good father. However, in world history, and then maybe even today, we're seeing a return of paganism. In fact, that was the title of an article uh, in The Atlantic in the past couple weeks by David Wolf, and this is I thought really fascinating. Uh, He writes this about just the modern world and uh, the Greek world. He said, and he's a, uh, a professor at Harvard, and so he writes this about his undergraduate students. He said, it's not easy to find an undergraduate who isn't interested in quote unquote finance. For a long time in the United States, the accumulation of wealth was teleological, or a ends to a means, uh, or a means to an ends. Wealth was a means of improving society, of creating something greater than oneself. The current ideology of wealth is solipsistic, which is based on yourself. I should become wealthy because I should become wealthy. Wealth is a cover for the means to the ultimate object of worship in pagan society, which is power. The Greeks taught that the rich and powerful and beautiful were favored by the gods. Then along came Judaism and after Christianity that argued that widows and orphans and the poor are beloved by God. The worship of the body of beauty, which is another form of power, is another pagan inheritance. The English critic Matthew Arnold famously said, 
The Greeks believed in the holiness of beauty, and the Hebrews believed in the beauty of holiness. Because in our culture, again, I think you could roll all those four desires into one concept, which is power. If I have control, then I have the power of certainty. If I have uh, pleasure or comfort, I have the power of, of being able to enjoy life. If I have approval, I have the power to uh, be cared for and love one another, uh, or be cared for and loved by others and therefore have influence of others. I mean, in, in probably in different ways you could roll them all into one another. But in this point, it said in Greek culture, power was all about the idea of a, accumulation of wealth and being beautiful. And in modern America, there is nothing you are told more than that you need to accumulate wealth. Why? Because you need to accumulate wealth. And you need to be beautiful. Why? Because God smiles upon the powerful and the beautiful. And we can say that that's not right, but your heart struggles to believe it. And so, Hannah is going to pray in this threefold structure. He said, hey, there's people in our culture that want power, and God snaps them like a twig. There's people who try to fill their pantries and have enough food with bigger barns, and God shows up and says, I can take those barns away tonight. And then there are those who praise and the fact that they've had seven, ten, twelve sons. Certainly my security or my future is secure. And God can take all of those sons in the falling of a building. And what Hannah is saying is that on the one side of it is that there is nothing unbreakable in this world. There is no security in this world. Everyone should panic a little bit. At least if I'm going to pursue it with me trying to hold my life together. So you're never safe, uh, safe enough in your retirement. Uh, you will never have enough job security. You will never have enough equity. Um, your social influence will never be enough. You will never be able to protect your family enough. You are vulnerable and weak and have no control over your life. Regardless of if you are begging on the street or a billionaire. But on the flip side of this whole point, is that you have no security in your own power, but you have nothing to fear for those who are recognizing that they are under the care of a shepherd, of a good shepherd, who leads them in green pastures and by still waters and in the valley of the shadow of death, is never a moment where he is out of control of their life, of their joy, of their comfort, of their power. 
And so you are able to live into the words of Dallas Willard in his book, Life Without Lack. I've quoted this before, and man, I just, I remember reading this and being like, he just says it out loud. Like, who says this out loud? He says this, Jesus taught us not to be afraid of those who can kill the body. He also discussed other fears people have, each of which he gently and intelligently dismisses. You can live completely without fear. God is the kind of being who, if you place yourself in his hands in trust, will ensure that nothing can ever happen to you that will make you say, I'm afraid or I don't have enough. What do you fear? Whatever came to mind, I want you to know that you have nothing to fear. If you doubt this, I urge you to ask God to give you peace about this. Let me say it again. No matter what you fear, you can live without that fear. You do not have to be afraid of anything, nothing, absolutely nothing, not death, not the loss of loved ones. If you take the time required to come to know and trust God as he is, asking the Lord to give light to your mind, you can come to a place of perfect peace and fearlessness because God is with you. You can live without fear. Again, I'm like reading that and I'm just like, this guy is crazy. But there's a deep yearning in my soul to be able to not just know that in my head, but to incorporate it into my heart, my soul, my will. And that's what Hannah's prayer is saying. Hey, those who are going to try to hold their life together are trying to, who feel better when their retirement and investments are up and they have more property and passive income, you're never going to feel comfortable. You always have to live in the fear that it can and in some ways will be taken away in different magnitudes and different moments. But for those who are living in the ash heap, which the ash heap was the place outside of town where people took their trash and their poop. And those are the two things that were in a ash heap. And these people who were beggars would hang out in the ash heap. Why? I don't know. Why they went and been like, this is what I want. This is, this is my spot now. Possibly because everyone had to come to the ash heap to get rid of their trash, and therefore it was a place where they would intersect everybody in town. And therefore they'd be able to ask anybody in town for help. But also because apparently outside the city, even being in trash and poop is somewhat more of a place of refuge than being out on your own. And he says, those who are in the trash dung heap will be exalted to sit next to rulers, to the place of honor, because you have nothing that can happen to you in God's controlling powerful shepherding that can ever fully make you say, I'm afraid, or I don't have enough. I love how repetitive Willard is because he knows that this is something that is like this defiant cry in our culture and in our hearts. It's like we have to beat this over and over and over again in our heads. And then, 
Hannah finishes her prayer like this, chapter, uh, verse 6. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts up the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. It's fascinating in these verses, these five verses, because Hannah, in the midst of worship, in the midst of thanking God and Again, giving the themes that are going to be traced out in the entire book. More or less, if you want First and Second Samuel, which again is one book in its original writing, in a condensed form, it's this prayer. And in it, she is going to then turn from gratitude and being prophetic by speaking truth to a society, but then also being prophetic by speaking in truth that which people had not yet known. Because she's going to anticipate at the end of this prayer three things. She's going to anticipate the kingship of Israel, which had not been given yet. Samuel, of course, is the one who's going to anoint the kings, and he's just being born. She also anticipates the resurrection. In verse 6, the Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. You can look through the Old Testament. There is no worldview that believes in the concept of resurrection in the Old Testament. That was not their main way of conceiving what happens in the eternal. Now, it's unclear. Possibly they had that in the, their imagination. But if you look through, there is not this concept of heaven and hell the way that we would think of that. Sheol is not hell. It's just simply the place of the dead in the Hebrew imagination. And she stands as a unique prophetess who in this moment is going to say, God is not only able to care and to raise up those in the ash heap, he's able to reach down further than that. He can reach the dead and bring to life. And not only that, she's going to prophesy of the Messiah Verse 10. Let's go 9. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king, the exalt the horn of his anointed. This is the first time in Scripture that the idea of an anointed, or another word for anointed, is messianic, king is going to come into play. And of course, kings are going to be anointed with oil. Samuel's going to anoint Saul. He's going to anoint David. But again, in this moment, she's preceding all of that by saying there will be a messianic anointed king who will have his horn lifted up. And this messianic anointed king will be a part of not just reaching down to the ash heap to pull people up next to kings, but will be a part of reaching down into Sheol to bring people back to life. 
And all of what we've been talking about this morning of like, you have nothing to fear and there's nothing that can make you say I'm afraid or I don't have enough, all is bogus if we don't follow a God who in the midst of all chaos is working out for good. And there's no ultimate way to stamp down to say I can turn chaos into good than bringing death and making it into life. And so this idea of, man, I have nothing to fear, nothing that I can ever be saying I'm afraid, is ultimately pictured in the fact that Jesus, who gives himself fully over to the good shepherd, and in a moment says, like Hannah, I don't see how this is going to turn out for good, but I am so entrusting to my loving Father that I will follow him. And I will trust that he will, even if he has to do something that nobody's thought of or seen before, he will bring life out of death. He will bring joy out of the barren womb. God is working all things out for good, not in neutral circumstance, but in chaos. And as all the world works, God says, or Hannah prays, it's because the, the four pillars of the earth that God set it on, like everything, nations can go crazy, storms can do all this stuff. I mean, people can be cheat and steal and lie, but God all has it on this little ball on a platform, and he works all chaos out for the good to exalt the humble, the poor, the weak. And it's not like you then have to be poor your whole life. Hannah's given children, and she says, no, I have now been exalted. But she exalts not as one who did it or feels like she could keep it together but she's exalted as one who realizes, I have nothing to fear, for I am not the one who holds my life together. That is given to another. And therefore, I can give, I can worship one who will bring life out of death if he has to. Let's pray. Father, I pray for you to do as Willard said. You would create in my heart, you create in my brothers and sisters' hearts here, a sense of peace that surpasses all human understanding. A peace that says we have nothing to fear and there's never a time where we can say we don't have enough because you are providing everything. And green pastures and valleys of death, you are not concerned, you are not out of control, but are even using chaos to bring beauty and are bringing, using death to bring life. And so I pray, Lord, that we would have hearts that would not just, or not just heads that would know it, but hearts that would experience it and souls that would live in shape of that. And Lord, I recognize that that is a work of your spirit, just like the work of salvation, that we are brought from death into life. The idea that we are brought from fear into security in you is completely something that your spirit must do. And so I beg your spirit to do it again for me, for those here, so that we might be those who are radically generous, who are radically worshipful, who are able to rest in the fact that you're holding this ball together on a platform and you're not overlooking us. Like the little bird, how much more do you love us? I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.